Hey, fintech friends. Fintech friends, my name's Helen Femi Williams, and I'm your host of Hey Fintech Friends. I hope you're doing well. I know I am. So let's talk about the structure of this podcast. We're going to go through the fintechionery, go through the news, and if you subscribe to the This Week in Fintech newsletter, you're in luck because this is the audio version. Then we're going to have a chat with this week's friends, Justin and Sophie, and then we'll go through signals and events. So hope you enjoy this episode. But first, the fintechionery, e-commerce. According to Amazon, the buying, selling or trading of products and services over the internet is called e-commerce. Generally, the term also encompasses the transfer of money to complete such buying, selling or trading transactions. In an e-commerce context, both seller as well as buyers can be individuals, small to medium sized businesses or even large governments or government organisations. Some sellers might opt to sell only online exclusively, whereas others could have both physical stores, also called brick and mortar stores. The field of e-commerce looks set for continued growth. By 2025, online sales are expected to make nearly a quarter of global retail stores. More than 2 billion people bought products online in 2021, resulting in nearly $5 trillion in retail e-commerce sales. This number is expected to grow, hitting $7.4 trillion by 2025. This week in fintech. All right, the news. In product launches, Wells Fargo launched a digital platform for wealth management customers. Other news, India and Singapore became the first two countries to link their real-time payments cross-border, bringing together over a billion consumers and two distinct business geographies. It's been exciting to see the drive towards payment and QR ubiquity in Southeast Asia. Hopefully more to come. The Japanese and Russian central bank are both kicking off pilots of their own digital currencies. The US nominated the ex-president of MasterCard for World Bank president. Separately, the World Bank says its new ESG bond is immune to greenwashing. MasterCard partnered with Web3 firm Immersive on enabling crypto wallet payments. The European Central Bank is stepping up its monitoring of banks' digital transformation efforts after finding shortcomings at many bank strategies. Vanguard pulled itself out of an industry alliance to tackle climate change saying that its voice has been drowned out. The FFPB is looking into play-to-pay mortgage loan comparison sites. MasterCard and Visa are both facing another class action lawsuit over their interchange fees. In product launches, Monzo launched its new instant access consumer saving product with 3% API. Column Tax partnered with Moneyline to launch free tax services to customers. Stripe launched an enhanced issuer network with US card issuers to help fight fraud. LATAM open banking Belvo launched its product in Colombia. Revolut bought its credit cards to Ireland. Zillow partnered with Opendoor to give its users a real-time cash offer after shutting down its own iBuying service. Astra real-time money movement solutions built on Visa and Cross River passed 100 million in annualized gross payment volume, and Klarna reported a 71% year-over-year increase in US volume. 
The UK FCA granted an e-money license to Pioneer, an Israeli trading and crypto platform eToro secured a New York money transmitter license. India gave Amazon and Google online payment aggregator licenses while requiring both banks and non-banking financial companies to cut their ties with fintech leading companies. Quietly in the background, Simmons issued a 60 million digital bond on the Polygon blockchain and MakerDAO is voting a $100 million loan participation with a Florida commercial bank. Meanwhile, Ant Group partnered with the NBA to promote basketball in China and Pan-African payments firm Chippecaf went through its second wave of layoffs. All right, we've got two amazing guests today and I'm really excited about this episode because honestly, it was just like talking with mates and just chatting and we went through so many interesting topics. So Justin Smith is the Chief Executive Officer for Samcart, an e-commerce platform for online creators. Justin comes to Samcart with a unique background working in both startups and larger high-growth SaaS companies. His experience in growth product and leadership drives his passion for creating products that helped make enterprise-level tools accessible and easy to use. He's originally from Washington, D.C. area, but now lives in Austin. Justin enjoys traveling, movies, and trying any microbrews he can get his hands on. Sophie is the Global Fintech Partnership and Business Development at Visa. She is part of the credits and transaction process industry located in California in the US. Okay, hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for joining me on Hey Fintech Friends. I'm really excited to have you both here. I think the best way to start is to just find out a little bit about you guys. So tell me about yourselves, what you do, and I guess the relationship between you guys. Sophie, do you want to start? Sure. So my name is Sophie Shulman. I work at Visa. I'm on the Fintech business development team. Uh, So what my team does is we go hunt and source and try to create partnerships with companies that are operating. FinTech is a very, very broad, (laughs) loaded term. So my team really focuses on a couple of segments, um, which is how I got to know Sam Cart and Justin. One of those segments is a social and creator-focused segment, which includes gaming. So Sam Cart is one of Visa's partners. We recently announced a creator commerce program of which Sam Cart is included in. So I'm not going to steal Justin's thunder, but I'll let him give his intro and explain a little bit about what Sam Cart does. All right. So yeah, my name is Justin Smith. I'm the CEO of Sam Cart. Sam Cart is a e-commerce platform for creators, digital sellers. If you think about the average e-commerce platform today, most of them are creating stores. And what Sam Cart does is we actually create uh, checkout experiences. And so if you think about the world um, that we live in today and the way we discover products, we discover them through social media and through ads and through record recommendations and community. And so what SamCard does is actually brings the commerce experience to that point of, of discovery. And so our customers who are you know, largely creators are creating all different types of products, whether they're it's swag or subscriptions or podcasts or you know, gated content. 
and then they're bringing that to throughout the buyer journey. And so, um, yeah, that's what that's what I do. A little bit of background about myself. I was born um, outside Washington, D.C. I went to uh, UMBC. So UMBC, um, for the longest time, was known for its chess program. But more recently, we were the first 16 seed to win in the uh, March Madness NCAA basketball tournament. So that's a, a, a kind of interesting, cool claim to fame. I left college and went to work as um, a contractor for the federal government. That was I quickly learned that it's not where I belong. I, sh I do not belong in the government. I left there and um, joined my first startup. And so it was a SaaS, SaaS startup back in the early 2000s. And it was sort of when SaaS was becoming SaaS. Um, and I've, I fell in love and I've sort of been doing that ever since. I've worked for small companies, big publicly traded SaaS companies and everything in between. Um, and I've been at Samcart for about six years now almost. And it's it's been a wild ride. So That's amazing. And thank you for that backstory and like understanding your claim to fame um if we were to circle on sam cart so this seems like a really basic questions but for for instance if you were like explaining it to your mum or your um friend your non-fintech friend how would you explain the use of sam cart or like what sam cart does yeah i typically um Whenever I'm explaining to you know a friend or a parent who's sort of not living and breathing this space every day, I typically um, turn around to their own user behavior. So I, I sort of ask them, "Hey, what's the last product you discovered? You know, what's the last thing you've bought online?" And a lot of times, I'll, you know, say, "Well, where did you find that thing?" And they'll say, "Oh, well, I was scrolling Instagram and I saw an ad." Or uh, my friend in this you know Facebook community and in, in my mom's group recommended this really cool you know new thing for you know my child and i say okay cool like what like when you saw those things did you go and then go to a store and start shopping around and did you then add that product to a cart and did you then go through the four-step process to actually like make the purchase habit oh no no no! i just like got a form i was able to like buy I'm like okay cool that's what we do like we we enable that like really quick purchase experience right when you're discovering that product um and i think you know that that resonates with folks right when they think about how they're you know, using the internet today or how they're discovering products. And then I think on the flip side, I think um, the second piece of it is really like this idea that digital products, I think, especially with the pandemic, have really come to the forefront of people's minds when you think about e-learning and thought leadership and this idea that like, okay, you know, I have this wealth of knowledge and I can go online and I can present it and sell it. And, and, and you know, whether it's through a membership or a course or an ebook, I think that... I've, I've done a lot less explaining post-pandemic of what I do than, than before the pandemic. So I think that's uh, been sort of much easier for me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, we spent two, two years online constantly buying things, doing stuff. Um, Sophie, what have you found that when you're sort of in this space that um, things have changed quite a lot since the pandemic? And how do you find that kind of end-to-end -end experience of kind of getting a product with, with Samcart or just in general in your work? Like how, how's that been, how is that for you? Yeah. So I think, you know, where Visa sort of sits in this model um, is largely abstracted away from the end consumer. But given, I, I mean, I'm a little biased in terms of where we spend our time as a team. We're really thinking about the delivery of, you know, amazing, easy experiences to buy things. So exactly where Sam Cart sits. So we're sort of thinking B to B to C, what does that delivery look like, that experience delivery look like? So from a couple perspectives, one, I think for, you know, sellers, small businesses, you just saw this inflation of businesses that were created and that were digitized during the pandemic that didn't exist before. The economy benefited from that. Consumers benefited from that choice. Um, and, and the reason why we, we 
are very proud to work with companies like SamCard is because they're sort of increasing the overall pie of, you know, the ability to buy something. You know, from a consumer perspective, though, contrarily, I don't think that that experience has generally changed. That experience of buying something online has changed that much since, or at least for the last couple of years, right? That same transformation that you felt on the seller side didn't feel matched on the consumer side, right? Think about how many times you enter your card number into a static form to check out online. And then depending on where in the world you live, you might have to go through a step-up authentication flow, right? So in Europe, every time you're entering a one-time passcode, sometimes you're doing that in the U.S., sometimes you're not. And so I think we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to matching that experience for what what it means to a consumer to buy something seamlessly. And I think that that's really the opportunity that exists Um, when it comes to supporting um, creators and businesses and helping with conversion rates and and attribution and consumers knowing, you know, what they want to buy, when they want to buy it and helping them get through that process as quickly as possible, but also helping them do so in a way where it's not riddled with fraud. And so it just creates these really, really interesting problems that I think, um, you know, still have yet to be solved. I think what you said there was really, really interesting. And and, uh, Justin, I'm quite curious what you think the kind of future I guess of like I don't want to say buying things on the internet because I think it's way more than consuming on the internet how do you see that kind of relationship going because I feel like there's so much that you could put in there with web3 or even how we now buy things through social media or just even if I think of myself I'm constantly on my phone on these apps I don't really think about it I don't really think about the back end thing or like if I'm on Amazon, I just go like this. So I guess, yeah, if if I was to have a magic ball and we look 10 years into this kind of like world, what does it look like? And especially with the relationship with like influencers and stuff. Well, a couple of interesting things are happening that we're seeing start happening now that I think is definitely going to continue in the future. I think the first one is consolidation, right? So consumers are demanding a level of experience that they're used to when they're you're using their apps on their phone and as we're becoming more mobile focused and they're using their social media and they're just, they're used to a curated um, sort of tailored experience. And I think we're going to start seeing a lot of that uh, moving forward. I think one of the, the really interesting things that we're going to start seeing over the next couple of years, when you think about the creator space specifically, we're really, really early on, right? It takes about four years for a creator to make like tens of thousands of dollars, like side hustle money. It takes them nine months to make their first sale, right? And so, and most of these folks don't even have their own sort of websites and blogs or, or anything like that. They're using their sort of primary channel um, online. And so if we marry that with this idea, there's sort of two trends that we're seeing. The first one is that we're seeing the pandemic brought a whole bunch of these folks into, you know, existence, right? We have a whole spike of people that are sort of becoming creators and thinking about their content, how they can sell it online. And then on the flip side, we also are going to see um, folks that have been around for a while hitting that maturity curve where they're starting to actually process side, you know, tens of thousands of dollars online. And what this means, and going back to the original question is, I think what we're going to start seeing over the next couple of years is that when I, you know, when you think of the word creator today, you typically think of influencer or sort of like entrepreneur or founder. I think that's going to shift. And I think that's going to shift to a world in which creators are more small businesses and where the ecosystem of what we buy online is going to shift to becoming more and more from these micro SMBs and creators than you would from your traditional brand. So I think not only are we going to see consolidation of where commerce is happening because there's just so many places online this is occurring and you can see already today, you know, Facebook, 
Instagram just got rid of their live stream shopping, you know, solution. And um, we're going to start seeing that consolidate on places like our solution and Linktree and other places that are happening sort of in one centralized place. But I think that you're also then going to be buying from more of these micro SMBs, SMBs in the future than you are from your traditional, you know, big brands. Um, yeah, so I think it's going to be exciting. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because there's this middle ground between, I guess, you, what you're saying where there's like these huge companies and then you've got like influence of or micro influencers. And now you've got this middle ground that's being created where it kind of mixes both into each other. So I think that's a really interesting thing. And I think you you already kind of see it. Um, I'm even if I think of my own shopping habits or what I buy online, it's like if I if it's a brand that I don't know, I might try it once, <laughs> see what happens. Like why not kind of thing. So I think there there's definitely that space. Whether it's just buying like items or like you said, like actual pieces of content or information or or what someone is selling. Um, um, so yeah, um, I don't know if you guys saw on the sheet um, if. I wanted to know if there was some sort of, well, we've, we've already kind of talked about it actually, or maybe, maybe you have another one, but is there kind of like a fact or like interesting piece of information you've seen recently that kind of, I guess, feeds into this conversation around products? So I think the, one of the other trends and completely agree with everything Justin said, the other thing that I actually, I looked at this chart the other day and it's a shame that I actually can't project it on my screen, but I'll have to share it around after. I saw this graph and it shows internet users versus crypto adoption. So number of crypto users globally over two different timelines. So they're basically super set on top of each other. And we are now in 20, it's looking at 2022. So now I think we've surpassed, depending on <laughs> what you believe about the economy. I don't know if we can look this data up in real time, but we have nearly surpassed total number of internet users from 1998 with the total number of crypto users globally this year. So that's around somewhere between 100 million and a billion. Don't quote me on the number. I'm not going to put that out there. But I think what that means is a couple things. And just to add on to the trends that Justin was mentioning, um, this isn't necessarily just pertaining to sort of creators, although I think creators have been a beachhead as well into the crypto economy. If you think about NFT and metaverse and Web3 adoption, right? These are all creators that are pioneering that space. And so I, I think of crypto as sort of a sub-segment sub, sub of creator and creator as a sub-segment of crypto, depending on how you look at things. But I think that means for financial literacy, you know, you're seeing it at a younger age, you're seeing people sort of have to manage their wealth and think about how their money is moving and where they want to spend and how they want to spend and on what. Um, at much younger ages. And so, you know, there's now been this whole sort of uh, what we've seen just even within the creator economy is a whole new set of neobanks that are verticalized just to younger users to help them manage their money. So think of, you know, Step and Carrot, for example. And there's a really interesting fintech called Willa that's trying to help creators um, build sort of uh, their lives on day one on this platform where they help them think about sort of their their credit over time, for example, right? Um, and using non-traditional data sources to feed into that. So there's just so many use cases and ways that we can think about supporting this segment. Um, and I think that, that that trend around crypto, I, it was in some ways not surprising, in some ways scary. I didn't really know how to think about it when I first saw it, but I, I think it's a really, really interesting stat. 
I think uh, from my perspective, I'll, I'll shift from crypto to the other uh, the other contractually buzz term I have to use, which is AI. And I think um, we actually we ran a recent a recent experiment with our customers. And I think and I'm going to wait to tell you the fact until the end. But I think that the out the, the results of that test was super interesting. So if we think about a, a seller online, right, or a creator, right, there's sort of three common traits that we see in our successful sellers. The first two are kind of obvious. One, they've got to have a good product in an, in an interesting niche. The second one is they've got to be able to build an audience and reach out to that audience. That's kind of the, the table stake stuff. But the third thing that most people don't think about is they have to create high quality sales copy and they have to be, you know, essentially, you know, conversion experts on how they're going to translate someone that's interested in their product and actually making that purchase. And so that's a very different skill than someone who is creating content for Instagram or creating content for YouTube. Like that's not an easy thing to just pick up naturally. And so what I'm really excited about and an interesting stat that we found is that, so when you look at something like generative AI, so you, all the rage right now, like chat GTP and, you know, Jasper and GTP three, we actually took a, a segment of our group of our audience and we took about 1,400 of them, and we said when they were so so this audience was basically folks that we would call the sort of entrepreneurs. These aren't real businesses yet. These aren't even people that have big audiences that are starting to monetize them. These are you know Joe Schmo who's working and says I hate my job and I want to start a side hustle. So we took about 1,400 of those folks, and we brought them in, and we asked them to before they even started creating pages and content in our in our platform to go leverage one of these generative AI solutions. We said don't think about sales copy, just create your content and then put it into these generative solutions and put it on a sales page. And the results were astounding. So when when we take that sort of mass market and we bring them in and we say just start making money, only less than three percent of them will actually go on to make it their first sale. It's really really low. When we took this segment of 1,400 people, which is you know relatively small, but also I think uh, interesting enough that 15% then went on to make their first sale. And so I think that that study, although is exciting for us internally as a software company, because we can like incorporate into like our platform to make our creators even more successful, I think is really one of the uh, breakthrough use cases, maybe I would say for like a generative AI. I think we all sort of are, are reading about in the news and we're seeing all the cool ways in which you can, you know, leverage search, but we're starting to now see it kind of creep into like real e-commerce and sales, which I think is is super, super interesting. How many people like went on to create a business post that study or, or like po post, yeah, like working with you? Of the 1,400 people, about 600 of them went on to actually like create some sort of like product. And about 150 of them went on to actually create like a real product, like a product that could be served in market that's really, really well done. So a pretty high, and those numbers are actually really high compared to sort of the average, you know, person coming in the door trying to sort of start making money online, selling and creating digital products. And so we found that to be super interesting. I think, you know, about 20% of what we see, if you start making a dollar online, about 20% of those will go on to make real businesses, you know, making, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month. If you can cut that beginning part down from 3% to 15% or sort of increase that from 3% to 15%, the likelihood of a business succeeding is, is I mean, that's, that's a, a huge jump in terms of what we see in the mass market. And that's also why I think we're going to start seeing a whole wealth of these SMBs that are successfully selling online. And it just this micro SMB that's going to be, you know, even more powerful and impactful in the future. Yeah, I've got thoughts on both of the both of your points <laughs> and feel free to like interject and stuff but I was it's really interesting I guess there's most people obviously work for someone else and I was just wondering do you do you feel like there's going to be this increase of people basically who I guess their side hustle becomes their hustle do you think that having these kind of platforms there will be like more entrepreneurs or is it that 
instead of being entrepreneurs, it's more that people have more side hustles. Like what kind of person is being created? Because we don't really live the way, I guess, in terms of our careers and the way we see things. I guess like 20 years ago, or I'm not even 20 years ago, there's more of a culture of like staying in the job you have for like 40 years. Whereas now with side hustles and making it easier to get this and that, and you and, and by seeing other ways that people live, people are starting to, I guess, decide to make a leap into something else. And I guess I was just wondering, Sophie and Justin, is that the trend? More people becoming entrepreneurs or more people getting side hustles? Like what, what is happening? It's easier than ever to build an audience online. And it's easier than ever to monetize that audience online. I mean, this is sort of my opinion, but... I- I think that we've sort of shifted from in the future thinking of jobs as like a singular revenue stream, like as a consumer, like or as a as a person. I don't go to work and have a single, you know, paycheck. Especially with the gig economy taking off and with you know, quote unquote side hustles and all these things happening, I think that what we're going to see is a lot more diversification in revenue that comes into the average household. And so the the average person is doing more with side hustles. And again, I don't, I'm not so sure that like it's sort of completely be your own boss. This is your singular job and it's all coming from a singular side hustle. But I do think that more and more people will quote unquote be their own bosses. The ironic part is as the creators get bigger and bigger, they're essentially creating a company to themselves. And so folks that are in the creator economy are actually working for other creators. If you look at someone like a Mr. Beast, for example, it's basically just a, a company at this point. It is, it, it'll be interesting to see because the more successful creators rise, the more folks have to support them. And they're, you know, obviously, you know, not working for themselves anymore and they're pulling from the best talent, which is coming from the creator pool. So, yeah, I mean, sample size of one over here. And I was just thinking as Justin was responding, how I was going to answer this in an authentic way, because I have been at Visa for my entire career, (laughs) probably not the best person to ask this question to. However, I then thought back and realized that a couple months ago, I opened a Poshmark account. And I started selling on Poshmark. Um, And for those of the users that don't know, because I think it's only a US-based app, Poshmark is essentially a a secondhand marketplace for pretty much anything. It's almost too easy to sell on this platform. And so I actually am an example of exactly what you're talking about, Helen, which is just the accessibility to these types of platforms is the easiest it's ever been. And, you know, I think that COVID definitely was a tailwind to that trend. But I think, you know, also just the way that sort of the, you know, I keep referring back to the economy because we see it a lot in our macro data, the way that things are going is that that is going to be a necessity for for many households um, and many individuals. And so, you know, platforms like these really support that. To go back to what you were saying, Sophie, about crypto and young people, um, even if I look, think of my own household, my, my niece, she's got like a Go Henry card, which is like a debit card for children Um, and it has all this like money management stuff but I was wondering what you think is kind of driving that because for me I think it's like like now if I think of living in London I can't tell you the last time I used cash especially like in a massive city like this it's just not really no one else is asking for cash and I think when someone asks you for cash, actually, you're sort of looking at them like, why would you need cash? And so I was, so to me, when I think about that kind of like money management stuff, I feel like that's what's driving it, that kind of cashless society we're living in. And then secondly, I think it's important because someone like me, for instance, like when I was growing up, I didn't around the table, no one was talking to me about investments, where to put money and stuff. And to a large extent, I learned that as an adult or like from asking friends or friends' parents and stuff like that. And But then if you look at other people's families, there will be families where that is common conversation around the dinner table and I think these kind of cards I guess are driving that kind of financial literacy but breaking that barrier that in 
communities or people don't necessarily talk about cash. So I was wondering what you guys think and where you think that's being driven from. I think I look back on like how I became financially literate and I grew up in a very privileged lifestyle in the U.S., you know, I went to schooling through college and I never had formal training about how to manage my money. And I didn't even have a credit card, admittedly, until a year after I joined Visa. And so I didn't really understand the concept of building credit. And, you know, it's becoming a necessity because of how people are making their money because of accessibility to these applications. So all sort of funneling back to some of the trends that we were talking about before. And there is a space for these sorts of experiences to exist now, right? And I think Europe and the U.S. are also slightly different behaviorally because the concept of a digital-only bank had sort of already skyrocketed in Europe. And in the U.S., I remember a lot of people were saying "There's that trend won't happen here. Bank branches are where business is done. And I think that that's still very much true, more so than in Europe and the U.K., but it's catching on, absolutely. And I think, you know, with the, with the shift... It, to Apple Pay, for example, where you're tapping your phone and the concept of adding your card in your, into your digital wallet, you know, also sort of anecdotally as well, my, my mother didn't really know what I do at Visa until she started using Apple Pay about a year ago because she felt uncomfortable using her card during COVID. And so we taught her what it means to add your card and authenticate yourself and you know, that magic moment when you tap and pay, what happens behind the scenes. And so it was an interactive experience for her to be able to learn. And I think that the learning models have also just changed, right? The screens and the time that kids get pushing buttons. I don't have kids of my own, but I see my cousins growing up and how they're taking in their environment through these devices. And I did not have that that same experience. So, and, and ways that devices can be negative, you know, everything is sort of a balance. But I do think that this is one of the positives that has come out with the sort of digitization trend and this multi-device trend in in every household that we're experiencing. Yeah, side note, just before Justin answers, on the Apple Pay thing, the last time I was in America, like May last year, I was genuinely quite surprised that people didn't use tap and like just their phone the way that we do here. And I remember being in a coffee shop overhearing someone talking about like, oh, did you know you could do this with your card? And I was like, we've honestly been doing that (laughs) for like the last 10 years. But it was just like, you know, because when you think about it, you're like, oh, we're going to be the same in those like attitudes towards these things. And I genuinely was so confused on like, yeah, even the use of cash. Like, yeah, it's very, it's it's a really good point. It always, it always makes me laugh how far behind we are. You know, I, I will never forget so I used a couple companies ago. I used to have um, we we had some offices in Europe and uh, different parts of the world. And I re- remember going and like, checking, you know, getting the end of a restaurant meal, and they would come walk over and process the card right there. And I was like, "What is this magic?" Like, you know. And so we're just used to like handing our cards off and someone going in the back and swiping it, and it's just a whole new world. Honestly, that's mad. Or even like the check thing. I was like, I was like, why are you guys still do, like giving your signature? On another extreme though, I, so I did spend six months with Visa and in, living in India in the first couple of years of being at the company. And I can say, so India might be the third world and the US might be the first world, but coming back, I think the US is the third world of payments infrastructure in India and countries like the UK where you're so far advanced decades in many cases where 
you've sort of passed the point of sale in the physical environment and you and these sort of economies have just moved to phone is really the first world of payments infrastructure. Yeah, I think that translates or that uh, that transitions well to sort of my original answer to the question, which was, I think sometimes we live in like a fintech bubble or a tech bubble and we sort of, you know, all of our friends and people we interact with do a certain thing. We forget about like change really only comes when the mass market demands it. Right. So I was thinking the other day I went to a stadium. I made a purchase to get a beer and it just it's a cashless stadium. There's no cash anywhere in the stadium. Or the other day I was interacting with a plumber and the plumber was like, oh, no, no, I'm just just Venmo me. And I was like, you know, that's new. Right. And so I think that like when going back to the points on India, or I know um, in the past when I was looking at um, working, partnering with some companies in Africa, like things like fraud or things like things that are happening within the, the, the mass market of those different you know countries or economies or whatever it is, really drive that change. It doesn't matter how much we as companies or, you know, the, the, the fintech community evolves from a tech perspective. It's really about when like the average consumer or the average, you know, person within that ecosystem needs that change and then will force it and, and follow along. So I think I think that's another reason why the U.S. has sort of always been behind is like, although risk is, I surely don't want to minimize it, but like, you know, I don't think giving your credit card to someone historically has been like a huge risky endeavor, whereas in some countries it is like you don't want to give away that information. So as we've seen that shift over the last few years where we do see you know, credit card readers that just walk by purses and can scan immediately pull that, that information off as that technology has evolved. It's really brought us to a point where, okay, now we sort of demand having chips and we demand having swipes and we demand bringing, you know, having it at, at the counter instead of, or at the, the table instead of bringing it back. And I think that's what, what drives change. Yeah. I've been reading about pig butchering. It's this crypto scam, but it's, it's a like romance scam. So, you know, sometimes you get like these messages or, or these texts where it's like, hey i'll pick up your dog or something and it's like you know this you don't know this number it targets people who respond and then there'll be like this beautiful woman and basically make you open a wallet they call it pig butchering it's coming from asia mainly china there's this like ancient thing about fattening up a pig so they're fattening you up basically to then take your money um and there's been this massive um i guess uncovering on in the uk because it's quite easy to set up businesses here um, to your point about fraud. And it's basically meant that there's been a lot of pig butchering scams happening in the UK because people can set up companies quite quickly. But yeah, it just, it just when you were talking about that, it just, it just reminded me of, of this pig butchering thing. Definitely read about it if you have time. It's really sad, actually. A lot of people lost money. And I think as well uh, with fraud, it's, it's really, it's such an embarrassing thing like being scammed that a lot of people just never really come forward because they're like, I lost all this money. How could I be so stupid? So I'm never going to like really talk about it. But yeah, so guys, I think we should move on to uh, a little bit about you guys. Um, so um, I'm going to ask you one question and then after that, we'll go to the quick fire because I think that's what we'll have time for. So actually, so this this question will be for Justin and then I'll ask a question for Sophie after. So this was a question from a previous guest. Um, what's the hardest or most bizarre question you've had from an investor? Ooh, that's a good one. Well, I won't name any names, but <laughs> I remember um, I remember very clearly sitting in a, a, a top you know top firm and having a conversation with them around. Well, let me take a step back. I'm a bootstrapper at heart, so w before we even raised capital, we were 
5,000 customers and $5 billion in revenue. And like the thought of raising capital, I was one of those people that's like, oh, we don't, we're never going to raise capital. I think we just sort of got swept up in the market. But so when we pr- first started pitching, we very, we very much came in like bootstrappers. We weren't pitching a vision or crazy future. We were sort of like, hey, here's our logical plan on how we're going to get to $100 million in revenue. And I remember sitting down with, yeah, that didn't work out so well. And so um, I remember sitting down with a big VC in, in uh, Silicon Valley and they sort of said, you know what? I, I really do believe that you guys are going to get to, by the way, this was for a $3 million seed round. I really do believe that you guys are going to get to $100 million, but you know, I need you to talk to me about your moat on how you guys are really going to get to be a billion-dollar company. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, we're trying to raise $3 million in our seed round. Like, you know, we're bootstrappers. Like, we don't even have a good story to tell for the billion-dollar. Like, we're, we're, our goal is the $100 million. And I remember thinking at that moment, and so the question, I guess the question that was actually asked was, well, I believe, you know, what's your moat that's going to allow you to get to an IPO uh, and beyond, Um you know, in, in three years and three to five years. And I remember just being completely caught off guard. And I think that was my first kind of like aha moment of like, oh yeah, like th- the world isn't, you know, this is not like, this is a game that we've got to play. We've got to sort of, you know, go in and paint the bigger picture along with just saying, Hey, here's, here's a logical bottoms up approach and how we're going to go to, go to make money. So uh, that would be my answer. Honestly, that must be so tough, not tough, but like, I think I think I have a lot of imposter syndrome. So the idea that someone's like, I went in a room and I had a business, and someone's like, "How are you going to make a billion? Like, I'm just like, I'm not. <laughs> like, like, I wouldn't know. What let let to me say. tell you, raising money is the worst, is the best worst part of my job. I I've, I like the I remember. I'll never forget the very first pitch meeting we ever did. We walked out of that room. We all high five. We said, "This is going to be easy. We've got it. It's going to be amazing." The very the next pitch meeting we did. Oh, terrible company. You've got no future. Like we walked out of the room being like, we're terrible. It's such a roller coaster of emotion. And it really is like just a wild journey. And I think, um, you know, comes with lots of interesting stories for sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All the little pieces coming together. So let's do the quick fire session. Are you guys ready? Yes. Sophie, would you rather have Hulk's powers or Beyonce's talent? Beyonce's talent. Justin, would you rather be on a game show or star in a soap opera? Oh, game show. I'm a huge, I love game shows. Uh, Sophie, would you rather be physically stronger than most people or be able to fly? Fly. I can't stand air travel for very long periods of time. Okay, and Justin, would you rather have a face tattoo of something you're choosing or a tattoo that's in a discreet area but someone else chooses it? Oh, discreet area, for sure. I, I have no shame. I, I would I would, I would, appreciate uh, someone else's crazy idea. I would, I would go for it. Sophie, if you're a superhero, what would you, what would be the first thing you do? Solve world hunger. I feel like everyone should have the right to eat when they want to eat. Justin, what time of the day are you most inspired? Oh, I'm a morning person for sure. Sophie, would you rather have to hunt for your own food or sew your own clothes? Sew my own clothes. Justin, would you rather wear a Halloween costume to your wedding or sweatpants on every date you go in the next two years? Ooh, well, I don't know how to answer this because I am married and my wife would probably kill me if I wore a costume to had worn a costume to our wedding. But I think I would go with sweatpants. I think sweatpants are the new the new the new cool thing, right? People are wearing sweatpants around town for everything these days. Sophie, sleep on the right side or the left side of the bed? Always the left side. 
Justin, would you rather have a driver take you everywhere or a private chef make all your meals? Ooh, driver take me everywhere. I... Sophie, would you rather have the best house in a bad neighborhood or the worst house in a fancy neighborhood? Best house in a bad neighborhood. I'm a homebody through and through. <laughs> Justin, would you rather win one million dollars today or ten million dollars in ten years? Uh, yeah, I think I take a million dollars now and see what happens. Sophie. Would you rather have one wish granted? Oh, this is kind of the same sort of question. Would you rather have one wish granted today or three wishes granted 10 years from now? One wish granted today. Time value of a wish or money. <laughs> and lastly, Justin, would you rather be brought back as a dog or as a cat in your next life? Oh, dog, for sure. I'm a huge dog person. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I don't want to take up more of your time. And I know it's been over an hour, but I've honestly really enjoyed this conversation. This has been great. I feel like I've learned a lot. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. We'll need to do part two sometime soon. <laughs> I'm signing you on, Justin. <laughs> well, let's do part two in Iceland. We'll meet there. It's halfway between yes. us and you. <laughs> I'm down. I'm so down. Okay, so Signals is our subscriber-only read. So if you want to read or listen to the full snippet that I'm about to read, then you need to subscribe to the This Week in Fintech newsletter. But also, sorry, just whilst we're on subscriptions, are you following this podcast on Spotify and Apple? Because if you're not, that's also something that you should subscribe to. Just saying would be great. <laughs> So I'm going to read you a snippet from one of our latest articles. And I think this is really well written and great. A really good article by Sophie Vo. ESG is broken. How to fix it. The investing world is designed to promote shareholder value, not shareholders value. Today, ESG model is ripe for disruption. ESG is turning out to be a... Why do investors pay a 40% premium on fees for ESG funds versus traditional funds where these portfolios don't necessarily outperform the market? How come there's even evidence that these companies have worse track records for labor and environmental compliance than companies in non-ESG portfolios? On that note, why is ExxonMobil one of the top 10 holdings in the S&P 500 ESG index if it runs the highest polluting oil refineries in the world? How come cigarette giant Phil Morris has an S&P ESG score of 83 when Tesla is only 37? And... What does an ESG score at 37 even mean? We need to talk about ESG investing. ESG has been touted as a way for investors to promote corporate responsibility in a world where companies are driven to action by movements in their stock price. It stands to reason that responsible corporate behavior drives better business performance. So shareholders who in principle govern the companies they invested in should be pushing for this anyway. In reality, the vehicles that most investors use to gain exposure to ESG are still principally designed to drive short-term returns, not to push companies to do more recycling or whatever. There's even a credible argument to be made that ESG investing worsens a stock financial performance by driving up volatility. It doesn't have to be this way. Investing can very well lead investors to champion the causes they care about without jeopardizing gains. Getting there requires a sea of change in how investment products are structured to give shareholders an active say in portfolio companies' decision. Let's dive into what's going wrong with ESG models in the rest of this article. So if you want to read the rest of this article, like I said, please subscribe to the This Week in Fintech newsletter. Yeah.
Okay, events, we've got SF Fintech Happy Hour with Kona Infinity Ventures and NYCA happening on the 2nd of March. We've got Austin Fintech Happy Hour with Pratnex and NFO happening on the 8th of March. This Week in Fintech and Galio Happy Hour, the 15th of March. And This Week in Fintech Seattle Bank Happy Hour happening on the 30th of March. 